Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 304 and my conversation with longtime concertizing marimbist, percussionist, and composer, along with the director of percussion studies at Lee University in Tennessee, Andy Harnsberger. Let's get right to it. The first time I was aware of Andy was sometime in the early 2000s. He came to UNCG when I was a grad student there and did a master class and solo marimba recital that included such war horses that were new to me at the time, including John Serry's Night Rhapsody and Andrew Thomas's Merlin, among others. And I was really impressed. Recently, I knew him better through both his writing on the importance of physical and mental health as it relates to percussion performance but also his recent and very serious health battles that he's had over the past five years, which we will get into. I got a chance to chat with him at length at this past year's PASIC, which was a reintroduction to him, as well as a chance to meet and talk further with him and his colleague and recent podcast guest, Caitlin Jones. Andy suggested at the time that I have Caitlin on, and she was on earlier this spring, and to check back with him later, which is what is happening now. We get to a lot in this interview, including his position at Lee University, what it's like to maintain an active, concertizing marimba performance career, maintaining his personal mental and physical health, his upbringing in Virginia and his time at Eastman, and our usual close which includes a long discussion about past and present marimba literature and his cancer diagnosis and recovery. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 28th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Andy, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. I'm responsible for uh, teaching applied lessons at Lee University and uh, directing the percussion ensemble. And uh, those are my responsibilities. Oh, I do, I do teach uh, percussion literature and percussion pedagogy as well. That is required of performance majors if they're undergraduate and also required of graduate students. What's the, the usual size of your studio and, and then what's kind of the size of the music department as a whole? Before the pandemic, we were sitting right around 15 uh, percussion majors. And since then, it's been low and it's been um, right around 11 or 12. So only a few numbers off from where we where I would love to have it. Um, 15 seems to be a really good number. We've been as high as 18 in the past, and that seems to be, that's okay too, Um, but I would really love to be around 15, 16. The School of Music itself has been as high as 350 majors, but overall the School of Music is a little bit lower. I think that that's the trend these days, just nationally. It's just a little bit lower not as many students going to college, uh, not as many to pull from. And since the pandemic, a lot of people are, are taking that gap year and a lot of people are, are uh, just not going into music. So just seems to be a trend. 
hopefully in the next few years, it'll pick back up again. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Tell me a little bit about getting the job, uh, where you were before, and kind of the situation you were walking into when you arrived at Lee. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I I graduated. I left uh, Eastman. I left Rochester in 1996 Mm -hmm. and then started um, immediately just trying to go out and make things happen uh, performing-wise. One of the places that I played was Lee University. And so I did a concert uh, sort of presentation at Lee, and then um, they hired me adjunct, uh, well, part-time, starting in 1997. Did you have a, now, when you, just out of curiosity, when you did that concert, did you, was there a connection there, or was this just like a cold call trying to play a bunch of places? It was a cold call, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, no, no connection, just wanted to play as many places as I could. And I was living in Tennessee. I was living in Nashville. So um, I called every place in Tennessee. I emailed every place in Tennessee. Uh, Well, a lot of phone calls, too. Back then, email was just sort of taken off. So there was a lot of phone calls. For the next 15 years, I was artist in residence at Lee. I was coming in one day a week. And when I first started at Lee, there were uh, three percussion students. Very green studio. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a lot of experience. Um, but over the next several years, we got, you know, started pulling in students and I was still artist in residence. Um, they actually offered me the job uh, twice, full time, twice. And I turned it down because I was performing so much and I really wanted to keep that going. Then in 2011, they offered me uh, the job again. We had just gotten a new dean, and the new dean offered me the job again. That was would have been starting full time in 2012, and so I said yes. I, I don't regret the decision at all. I I just found out that I was going to be a father. Where I had just yeah just found out in 2011 that I was going to be a father, and so I needed to kind of get off the road and get those benefits and have a you know full time salary and all of that stuff. So. When you were in this artist kind of status, this was a was this still considered kind of a just an adjunct, a level of an adjunct position within the school? Was that kind of the designation? Yeah. So when I started, it was uh, part time, and that's kind of the lowest level uh, salary. It, it's all it's all based on salary, and then when you get kind of promoted to um, artist in residence, you can kind of negotiate. Uh, I was able to to kind of negotiate uh, the salary that I would uh, get. Mm-hmm. I was getting paid much better than I would have gotten paid as a part-timer. Gotcha. You were performing enough. When you were those years, are you, are you just kind of like, I have this position that I, I teach at this school, but like, I'm going to try to kind of push forward the solo, the, the performing part, as maximum as I can within that construct. Was that kind of like, and I have, but I have a home base. That's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Um, It was nice to have this um, teaching job, Mm -hmm. uh, but that's never really what I wanted to do. Uh, When I, even when I was getting my DMA, that was never the plan. The plan was always to be performing in some aspect. So when I got out of Eastman, 
there were no orchestral jobs available. I didn't really want a teaching job and I had a marimba. So I just started going out and pursuing the solo concerts. And by 1998, I was doing 40 concerts a year, average. You know, it was, it was a lot of hustling, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls and, you know, a lot of that, that kind of thing. But that was really my full-time job. And um, this was just nice to have, yeah. you know? I, yeah. Okay. And I, I, I'm like, now I'm understanding the framing a little better. When you, when you said like, no, this, the performing was the full-time job, like, and I, I do this thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then it was a total shift in 2012 to now I do this thing. Yeah. And I don't do as many concerts, don't do nearly as many concerts as I used to do, but I still try to get 10 or 15 uh, performances a year. Nice. Which for a full-time uh, teacher, that's, that's still pretty. That's good. Hectic. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, well, throwing being a, a dad too, like that, that's certainly a factor. <laughs> yeah. Can't definitely can't be gone as much as I used to be able. Sure. I'm curious when you were playing that many concerts a year, the, the 40 or so, how were you dealing with programming? Um, were you, were you kind of, did you just kind of have like a rotating thing where you had a set of pieces that were basically writing at any time and then you would learn a few new things and kind of, how, how would you kind of organize your own programs? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly what I did, especially when I first started out was just had, um, a set list of, of rep that I was going to do. And I also had like these side pieces that I could pull in sometimes and kind of rotate around. Um, for the first couple of years, I actually, this was not very smart, but I was like taking requests. Is there anything that you want to hear? And I would get, you know, Merlin, 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 <laughs> Merlin a, a lot. I know I performed uh, Merlin 186 times and um, Night Rhapsody was on the, on the list. And yeah. th that was fun. I, I really enjoyed those pieces and I liked performing, performing them. Um, but after a while, it's like, okay, I can't play Night Rhapsody one more time. Can I do it? Um, you just get tired of, you know. Um, then I, you know, I started started writing uh, my own stuff, and so um, incorporating my own compositions more. And so now, when I go out and play, the whole concert is my own stuff. Mm. Yeah. And night rap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have, you know, I have toyed around with the uh, idea of pulling that one back out, but, jeez, uh, <laughs> just the thought of it is, uh, uh, sometimes I'm like, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. Other times I'm like, oh, don't do it. Don't do yeah. it. <laughs> have, have you ever had um, Hellbull's Takata in your... Out of Fantasy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one, too. It's a, it's a good one. I, I've... I've recorded it and I've played it like, I think I've done it twice in a couple of cycles. And it's one of those pieces where I have to say to myself, okay, I have to, I have to want to practice this an hour every day just to maintain it. And it's like, that's usually when I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, that was really the hardest part about doing all of those concerts was finding time to practice. Yeah. Um, and and being motivated to practice the same pieces yeah. for that concert series. And not just for that year, but you know that you're going to take those pieces to the next year, a lot, some of those pieces to the next year. And it's just, it becomes um, grueling and mind numbing. You yeah. know, sometimes the practice sessions are, uh, <laughs> again. <laughs> so that's, that's really the hardest part about doing that is keeping everything worked up because um, sometimes you don't have time to practice with the traveling. And yeah. then, and then, so I always told myself, you've got to be really ready before the first concert. Because after the after it starts, you're really not going to have every you're not going to have every day to, to be able to practice. There's a lot of traveling. There's, uh, you know, obviously the performances and the residencies at wherever you're playing. And so you've really just got to have everything ready to go um, before September. Got it. Yeah. How would you on these particular tours, how would you deal with um instrument would you were you were you bringing something with you the whole time and just traveling by car or were you trying to get things set up locally most of the time i was um traveling by car and taking my own instrument and during those um the earlier years i was uh artist with adams mm -hmm. and pearl and so a lot of places actually had adams instruments and so um i was able to sometimes not Sometimes I could just fly in and, and do the gig, and and other times it was okay. I'm, I'm gotta. How many hours do you want to drive? You know, and um, so that that was another hard part of it was um, packing up the instrument and you know driving for maybe seven eight hours doing a concert and then packing up the instrument and driving another ten hours to the next location. You know. So it, it does become grueling if you're if you're out for several weeks at a time. When you were do in that in the midst of that 15 year period or so when you're doing all this, at what point do you do, do you start writing? And is it just because of is it just to kind of a variation or are you like I'm chomping at the, I have things I actually want to say with my writing? Yeah, all, all of my pieces are inspired by certain things, um, either life events or people. Um, and so, you know, when you get inspired by those things, certain things you cannot say in words, you know. And so that's the reason for that's an outlet for me. One of my more popular pieces, Words Unspoken, I wrote that piece in 1998, 1999. And it was um, inspired by my dog dying oh. and um, or, you know, getting along in years and watching him kind of, OK, I've got to ready myself for the events of this this event that's going to happen. And so, you know, uh, the piece has three sections and it's basically um, saying what you would go through when you lose someone that you love. 
And so all of my pieces are, are like that. Every one of them means something, you know, and uh, sometimes I can't really say what it means and it's nobody else's business sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, I don't really consider myself a real like composer. Um, I write for a medium that I know well. The reason I don't consider myself a composer is because I, I can't just go in and sit down and start writing. It doesn't work that way for me. I know people that do that and they're great, um, but I can't. It doesn't work that way for me. Something has to hit me and go, OK, that's what I want to say. Wait, or, or sometimes do people come up and they'll be like, D did this mean this? Whatever, whatever piece. And you're just like, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Sure it it, yeah. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. And so the hardest thing for me is when I've been commissioned to write pieces, somebody will say, can you write me a piece for this? And then I have to sit there and go, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Now, I've, now the hard part is I've got to be inspired by something to write the piece. And so then it's, uh, what do I do? I, I listen to a lot of different music. I go through a lot of different experiences that I've had and, and things like that to try to uh, capture something that will uh, motivate some kind of creativity. <laughs> yeah. In that period when you were doing uh, the most performing, were, were you including in that not just unaccompanied stuff, but were you playing chamber music as part of that too? I was playing in a band called the Jack Daniels Silver Cornet Band. And it, it was a band out of Nashville that um, was a recreation of a small town uh, band from the early 1900s. And so we did um, music from that time period, but with uh, contemporary arrangements. And so I played xylophone and vibes. I played all the keyboard parts. And so we would travel, you know, sometimes two weeks out of a month. Um, and I, I played in that band for, well, for 10 years from 1997 to 2007. And um, then the band kind of dissolved. And, and then I was doing other things as well. And, and uh, but that was that was a great, great uh time in my career was being able to do these marimba concerts and play this with this great band with all of the uh best players in nashville you know i was trying to remember is that did john r beck was he in part he of that? was yeah he played in that band um for a while and then after him chris norton played in the band and then um when i moved to nashville chris was saying he didn't want to do it anymore or didn't have time to do it anymore. He was into other things. And so he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I got a great story about getting into that band. Um, so he gave me the band leader's phone number. And so I called and there was going to be a tour in about six weeks. We were going to do a show out in California, uh, which was the regular, what they called the hometown Saturday night show. And then right after that, we were going to go on a Christmas tour for three weeks. And so I'm calling to try to get the music and I never get the music. And every time I call, they say, yes, I'm going to get the music to you. And I tried every week 
And finally, it's like we're flying out to California and band leader says, oh, you can have the music to look up, look on the plane. And I get to the airport and no, the music is already checked. And uh, don't worry, though, you'll have time to look at the music uh, before the gig and, you know, get to the gig. And the drummer is like frantically pointing at every oh, be careful of this this is unison with trumpets be careful of this this is a solo this is all you be careful of this you know and i'm like oh my gosh and so i'm like literally sight reading the gig and i don't know if you know anything about uh john or chris but they're great sight readers and yeah. to tr you know to try to match that level of of reading on the spot at the gig was i was you know, just freaking out. And that's how I got the gig was sight reading the gig. And um, then I had, then, you know, two days later, I had to sight read the Christmas tour, which is a whole different book. Uh, but it was great. And, and uh, it's nothing to those guys that, I mean, they sight read in the studio every day. You know, this is like nothing for them. Um, so anyway, uh, I use that story a lot when I, uh, talk about sight reading because uh, even recently there was a, a thing, PAS put a thing out on the education uh, Facebook page or something like that, that said, is sight reading still an applicable skill? You know, and I'm like, how can this not be a skill that we're teaching our students? How is it? What do you mean? The better you can sight read, the less you have to practice. You can practice other things, yeah. you know? So um, anyway, that's my, my rant about sight reading. But um, uh, that was that was just a really fun time to be able to go. And we would go play these jazz festivals and just show up to the gig and there'd be uh, another book on your stand, you know, and you just have to read it. It's craziness. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It's like you have to not just deal with the playing, but you have to mentally deal with not freaking out every time you're in front of this situation. Yeah. Yeah. You probably have dealt with this with students before, but, you know, sometimes they're sight reading and they just stop. And, you know, just you cannot stop. This is the gig. I mean, this is the gig. It's your solo. You've got to you got to play something. Yeah. 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 So. Um, yeah. Fun, fun stuff. Uh. <laughs> So you were doing that on top of the other, you're, like that, that. That we're not including that in the forty-ish performances, right? That's, yeah, that's the, on top of that. On top of that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was pretty. I was pretty active. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> and nowadays, you're when you get to like fifteen, you might be like, "Wow, that's I. I'm pooped." Yeah. <laughs> It, it actually, it energizes me. I, I really enjoy it. And um, the two years that, you know, we had off and there were no concerts going on, Caitlin and I played the, the duo from last year on our uh, faculty concert. I was like so nervous being on stage again that I, I was like, I'm going to fold. I'm just going to fold. And uh, luckily, she's just so easy to play with and, it you know, just it just after about a 30 seconds of being on stage and you just get comfortable again and it's just ah yes i missed it cuz she's teaching with you yes so what what does that mean in terms of like 
do like uh, like teaching duties? It looks like for next year. Well, I'll just talk about this past year. I don't can't predict what's happening next semester. But uh, last year she taught um, elective students and minors. Mm-hmm. And she I think she had a couple of majors as well. And then I had everybody else. She also helps me uh, with percussion ensemble. And she'll do, you know, presentations in our studio class and things like that. Uh, talk a little bit about the school, because it's a very specific kind of school. I'm, I'm like, you know, the not just the music school. I'm talking about the university itself. Mm-hmm. And I would I guess the challenges of recruiting, because it's a pretty evangelical community, right? That's that's with the university. Is that right? It's, well, it's not. Well, the Church of God is yeah. the sponsoring denomination. Yeah. Um, and so that is evangelical. But not everybody that comes here has that religious background. There are a lot of people from all all kinds of different denominations. Um, myself, I'm Episcopalian, so it's way different than the Church of God. Yeah. Um, so it's it's pretty broad range. And so what we like to say that it's it's a Christ centered university, but you don't have to be Church of God to come here. But you are going to get uh, Christian activities and um, uh, Christian thought and Christian um, um, beliefs in your classroom. You're like those are things that you would find in the classroom. Are there things that they do? They have their the like weekly services or things like that that they're required to participate in or attend as part. Yeah, of Yeah, yeah. So there's chapel twice a week, and. I think they don't have to attend every one of them, but I, you know, there's a certain amount that they attend. There, there are also other um, other events, you know, that they they host on campus as well. So, gotcha. And you remind me, you're in the Chattanooga area, is that right? Yeah, we are about uh, thirty miles north of Chattanooga, so we're in between Chattanooga and Knoxville. In terms of, so I understand kind of the the kind of the range of student in uh, terms of kind of denominationally, but what's the range or what's the typical range of ge- geographically that students? Oh, wow. Are? I'll just tell you where my students are from now. Mm-hmm. I think only two of, two of my students are local and actually one of them is graduating and uh, has graduated and he's going to get his master's at Oklahoma City University with Tommy Dobbs. Yeah. Uh, and he he's a Cleveland guy. And there's another student who is also uh, from Cleveland. I've got students from Virginia, um, Florida, Nashville area, Georgia, Texas. I've had students from Ohio, a lot of students from Ohio, area. So, I mean, they really come from all, all around. So it's really the student who the student or his family, um, his or her family want them to have um, a private school experience. Mm-hmm. And because of the uh, school, we are actually one of the um, less expensive private schools out there. And we've got a really good music school and the reputation of the faculty is really, really good. So if, if students are looking for that private school experience, but with a good music school, I mean, like some of our faculty, all of our faculty are great. Some of them are just absolutely next level. 
like just world renowned mm-hmm. geniuses, you know. Um, so it's it's re- it's a really good place to be when they do like kind of show interest. I'll try to let's see how I phrase this. Um, are they are they looking at you at the private school, obviously, but the kind of the the Christian aspect is that kind of all folded together? Um, you know, with like the questions they may ask you, for instance, if they're interested. I would say, yeah, that's pretty typical that mm-hmm. they they know that they're coming to a Christian school. Um, and for the graduate students, it's not as big of a motivator uh, because they're not as involved in those. You know, like they don't have to go to the weekly chapel and the things like that. And they don't have uh, core classes that are uh, religious courses and things like that. Um, but for the undergrads, yeah, I think that that's all part of it. You're talking about recruiting and it, the challenges of recruiting Go, honestly, it goes both ways. Some some of the undergrads, that's what they want. So they they want that experience, and so they they that's what they're after when they get here. But sometimes uh, there might be some students that I'm that I'm really uh, wanting to get to leave, but they don't want that uh, Christian environment. They want to go to a, a bigger uh, state school or a place where they can have. Um, a marching band experience, for example, we don't have that. A lot of factors, and I would say a lot of the same factors that all universities have. You know, a lot of the challenges of recruiting that all either smaller schools or bigger schools have. You know, it can go, it can go any way. You never know what the student is after, and a lot of times the students don't know what they're after. It's the parents. For me, I think it's easier for me to recruit and attract graduate students because they know who I am. Right. And undergraduates haven't really been in this percussion world long enough to really know or have experiences that have pulled them towards a particular teacher, you know? So I have had really good luck with graduate students, getting them on campus and pulling them in to at least audition, um, they may not end up coming here, but they come in audition just based on my reputation. But the undergraduates uh, sometimes don't even know who I am when they get here, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. It makes sense. You know, one thing that I know that's, and I, I can relate this back to your, um, your extremely active performing career, but what I know another thing that you're, you've been very passionate about is your, is your health and keeping your health and and wellness aspect. And I'm wondering when was that something that is that kind of a lifelong thing or is that something that you came into uh, more as an adult? Well, I definitely got more passionate about it as an adult, but um, it's it was always uh, a lifelong thing. Um, Growing up, we were always active. We played sports. My dad was really um, into fitness and He's the one that introduced me to the weight room, you know, and, and got me into all of that. And, you know, the, the older I get, the more important I think it is. You know, I feel like you know, not everybody is going to be into lifting weights. You know, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody kind of knows that about me. But 
Um, it doesn't have to be everybody's thing, but I do think it's important to do something active and to stay active. It's it's good for your uh, obviously good for your physical health, but it's good for your mental health as well. So uh, there's so many you know aspects to it that can that help you out and and uh, you know I want to keep playing as long as I can do it. I want to keep playing forever. So if I'm not physically fit. I'm going to lose a lot of uh, dexterity behind the instrument. Yeah. Well, I think one thing I think about, particularly with weight training, um, and I th- I'm sure concerned that that other if other people know about your kind of that part of your fitness, is that there's it feels like there's a point with weight training where that can actually hinder flexibility. Well. You know? It could. I'm not saying it is. Yeah, that's uh, a common misconception Mm. because you know just because you get a little bit bigger muscles or you're a little bit more fit doesn't mean that you're going to lose your ability to move around. You know, I mean, unless you're you know one of those huge huge bodybuilders or something like that. But even those guys, you know, they they do stretches and they stretch every day. And I think that um, if you're still stretching um, before you practice and, and, you know, uh, just on a daily basis, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing before you play, you're not going to lose anything. Um, You know, that all of this goes back to um, I wrote an article called Stretching for Pain-Free Performance, and it was when I was having a lot of problems with my hands because of all of the performing that I was doing. So I had to take a little bit of time off and recover, but learn how to take care of myself. So um, it's not just about getting into the weight room and lifting weights. I mean, you still have to stretch to take care of yourself, you know, to take care of the, the, muscles that you use when you're performing. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in that instance, what did you physically notice? Was this, was this like a tendonitis thing that was coming up or carpal tunnel or uh, was it like anything like what was, what kind of things did you notice were happening that were happening to you? A lot of different things. So this particular season, I played 80 concerts. I had been doing 40 concerts uh, roughly, um, give or take for several years. And then I decided, you know what, I'm just really going to take this to the next level. I'm going to call everybody I know. I'm going to email everybody and see how many I can actually get. And I got 80 and that was obviously ridiculous, right? I mean, um, 75 is fine. By the way. <laughs> towards, towards the and I would say that like the second half of the tour, it was just really, I mean, everything was painful. And a lot of times I would show up and actually not have time to even warm up. I would just have to show up and play. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, incredibly detrimental as well. And so I just found myself like forcing my way through the concert. There was nothing easy about any, anything that I was playing anymore. So I was having muscular issues as well as uh, tendonitis and carpal tunnel issues as well. So 
on that last concert of that tour, I, I just remember thinking, this is it. I, I cannot do this anymore. I'm going to quit. Right after this concert, I'm going to quit. And I did. I sold my marimba. And I'm, I moved to the beach. And I quit. Honestly, it was a, the best thing that could have happened to me because while I was uh, taking time off, I realized that I missed it. And I became more creative and wrote more pieces and became more passionate about wanting to play again. And so it was really the best thing for me. But I talked to therapists about what I do and they showed me all kinds of stretches that I need to do. Not just, I mean, I was doing some things, you know, everybody does like, you know, and, and stuff like that. But also just things like, icing your hands at the end of the day, you know? And so I, I still do that regularly. So when I'm, when I'm practicing a lot, um, that's the last thing I do at night before I go to bed. I just ice my hands, just try to relax, you know? Did you, what kinds of things, I understand kind of the stretching aspect, but, but did, were there things in terms of practicing when you come back to playing that you, that change because of the, um, because of like this new either because of what you've talked about with therapists or how, however that ends up going. Just making sure that um, you're doing your daily routine. Everybody kind of has like little warm ups and stuff that they do, but developing a daily routine that actually starts with stretching and actually warming up, walking up to the instrument and just playing is not warming up, you know, and the daily routine should be something that you use to warm up, but also to focus on your sound quality and your motion and things like body positioning and posture and elbow shifts and rotation and all of the things that a lot of times we don't think about. We just walk up to the instrument and just start playing. So I really went back to following my daily routine. And if I've only got 30 minutes to practice in a day, I'm doing my daily routine. I'm not going to try to learn notes. I'm not going to try to force my way through a piece. You know, I'm, I'm going to do my daily routine. That's what I'm going to start with. And that's the key to longevity is, is focusing on all of those things. And that way, if you, if you establish that daily routine and you're really focusing on all of those things, if you happen to miss a couple of weeks because of whatever, of travel or on vacation or whatever. When you come back to the instrument, you know how to sound good because you've done that daily routine and you've focused on your sound quality and your motion. And so not only do you know what it sounds like to sound good, but you know what it feels like to sound good because of, you know, muscle memory. And so you're establishing that for a lot of different reasons. You're establishing that so that you can focus on your technique, but also so that you know when you come back to the instrument after a hiatus that, that you can still sound good. Are, are you someone who, in terms of time of day, are you like a, if you're, when you get up, are you a 
practicer workout? What, how do you, how do you tend to sh- shape your day with, with those aspects? <laughs> I am not a morning person. Okay. <laughs> I'll just right. start off by saying that I don't like to do anything in the morning. Uh, <laughs> it takes me a while to get moving, you know, so I've got to have, got to have some kind of caffeinated source. Mm-hmm. Um, typically I'll do my workouts in the morning and that kind of helps me get going. Um, I usually will during the school year, you know, it's, it just depends on when I can grab practice time. And that's, that's really kind of a hard thing. When I was preparing for PASIC and for 2019, um, I was like all nighters, um, for that because, you know, you're, you're, teaching all day. And then, you know, being a single dad, I'm, I'm at home with my daughter. And then when she goes to bed, I am using the Malatech late night practice series mallets and uh, just staying up all night, trying to learn notes, you know, uh, for that. I don't like to do that though. I don't like to practice that late at night. Um, but for that occasion, that was really the, the only time I could really do it. So I really like to practice like midday. That's really the best time for me. I would imagine the challenge when you're practicing that late is calming down. So yeah. You go to sleep after. Right. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that you can edit this out. I don't, I don't want to say that my life is any more difficult than anybody else's, but if you, if you get up in the morning and six o'clock in the morning, Daughter's got to be at school at 7.30, go to the gym, then come back to school and start teaching. And I've got to be done by 2.30 so that I can pick her up from school. And then I spend the rest of the day with her until she goes to bed. And then it's time for me to practice. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to practice that late. You know, yeah. you've had a full day already and then you've got to get in a couple hours of practice. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it is, it is challenging and yeah, you can definitely edit all of that out because uh, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, making my life any worse than anybody else's because everybody goes through the same thing. Everybody has the same challenges of finding time to practice. I don't feel like that was, there was anything there to edit out. That's just your, that's your schedule. That's your life as it is. So it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. These days, now that she's she's older now and she'll be 11 and so she's kind of used to doing things on her own and so i can just go down to the basement like yesterday i went down the basement and just practiced for a little while she was fine yeah. you know didn't didn't need any attention or anything like that so it's getting easier i think yeah all right well let's back up andy where did you grow up I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, which is Southwest Virginia. Um, Area. Yeah. It's awesome there. Uh, Good four seasons, you know, got the Blue Ridge mountains right there. Yep. Yep. That's right in the Valley. I taught at um, Concord in West Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. For for a bit. So that was a, one of the places my wife and I would go for, you know, a city. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not too far. Yeah. We liked it. I, I, I always enjoyed being there. Um, 
What did you uh, do? You have any family members in the arts? No, Uncle Bruce and my father both uh, really enjoyed all kinds of different music. Especially my uncle Bruce was really into classical music. Mm. Was not a musician, but he was really into classical music, and he had a uh, photographic memory. And also, he could hear a piece one time. Uh, assuming it was something like Mozart or Chopin, and he could sing the piece back to you. Now, he couldn't play any instruments, but he would read and tell you everything about those people. And here I am getting a doctorate from Eastman School of Music, and I can't hold a conversation with him because he knows more than I do about all of these people (laughs) just from reading record jackets, you know? And and you're sitting there thinking – could you take my oral exams for me? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How does you playing music start then? Wow. I think uh, listening to music, uh, just always had music going on in the house and uh, just kind of drumming along. I used to get in trouble in elementary school for drumming on my desk. And, and uh, these days they might consider it you know, to be ADHD if you did that. But um, back then they just smack you in the head and tell you to stop and call your parents in for a conference. In sixth grade, um, my, my parents got me a drum set for Christmas. And so that's when it started. And then, and then uh, beginning band was seventh grade for me. And so I did that and started taking lessons then. <clears throat> What was your go-to or some of your go-to music when you first get that drum set? Oh my gosh, classic rock. Yeah. Anything that was going on uh, rock-wise. So I I remember I couldn't play anything, of course, when I first started. (laughs) So just trying to play along to stuff that my dad would give me. He he was uh, a big fan of Billy Joel. Mm -hmm. And so he would give me some Billy Joel albums to, to... practice with and you know of course it was terrible and uh beach boys he really loved the beach boys so um stuff like that you know early on and then when i got uh started getting better and starting actually playing things then it was more like rush and uh journey and you know just you know stuff like that gotcha you know that some of those grooves those are like the um like moving out. Yeah. It's a great groove. Yeah. <laughs> of course I couldn't play it. Right. Right. No, I, well, yeah, right. I, was, I was just make, I was just faking my way through it to <laughs> dad smile. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. What was the, when you were growing up, what was the band experience like? The percussion section didn't get a whole lot of uh, attention. Sure. So, you know, it's was, it was one of those situations where we would sit in the back of the room and just kind of goof off. Then when it was time to play, we'd get up and play our quarter notes. And I, I, I did not like being in band, mm-hmm. except for the social aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual performing experience early on was, was terrible. Yeah, it, it was a good thing that I took private lessons. Um, because if, if I hadn't had lessons, I probably would have quit band. Mm. 
And were those lessons, those were drum set or they were all percussion? Drum set and snare drum. Okay. All right. <laughs> yep. So I didn't, didn't have any mallet experience until I got to college at all. Gotcha. Were you doing jazz at that point too? Yeah. On drum set. Yeah. Yep. Who were your go-to guys then? Uh, players. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, he had me exposed to a lot of players early on. Tony Williams, Elvin Jones. I mean, uh, just a lot of people. But my favorite guy was Steve Gadd, obviously, uh, was was a huge uh, motivator. Um, Still is. Like, let's not uh, cut that dude some slack. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we did a lot, of, a lot of different things. And um, he was a great teacher. And he was a great player. So it was, it was, those were really great lessons. Now, aside from that, I know you mentioned earlier about the sports. Were you also playing a lot of sports growing up? Yeah, we were into, um, well, I did everything. I wasn't any good at basketball, but I still did it. We did football until everybody got so much bigger than me. Uh, and then <laughs> um, baseball, played a lot of baseball and a lot of soccer. Gotcha. What were your uh, what were your positions in those sports? Oh, I played everything in baseball except catcher, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly shortstop, second base, and I pitched for a little while. Uh, soccer, I was midfielder, always midfielder. Lots of running yeah. up and down. <laughs> that was literally, I think, the only the only stipulation about playing that position when when I was same thing. Like it was like if you can run. You can play like. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you good at it? Like, were you a good hitter? Were you a good fielder? Do what was your? How was your? Do you scout yourself? I would say batting average was always a little bit above three hundred, so that's pretty good. Um, but base running was really what I liked to do because I was I was quick and I could always steal bases. So I was really into like just get me on first. I'll make it to third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly back then, like you just knew, I mean, I was kind of the same way. Like you knew that those catchers were just never, they weren't making, they weren't getting the second base before you were basically. Yeah. Yeah. You get on first, you got second. Yeah. Right. Unless, unless you just really can't run. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man. That's, that's, that's hilarious. Um, well, and you know, we had, I, I know I, you're, I think a bit older, but not by not, not by much, but I know, but like when we were growing up, if you were watching sports, like Ricky Henderson, I don't know if you were, oh, yeah. I mean, he was yeah. the guy like, yeah, yeah, man. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I, I played baseball one year with my, my brother. My brother is two years older than me mm -hmm. and some, something, I don't know how it happened, but he ended up on the same team as me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's probably one of the older guys in the division, and he had a batting average of over 800. <laughs> I mean, it's like every time this guy gets up to bat, he's hitting a home run or a triple. Yeah. It's like, God. And then for me to have a 300, just embarrassing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> every time we'd go home after a game, he'd be like, Yeah, I hit the cycle. <laughs> 
What did you do? Three walks. <laughs> well, you'd be like three walks, but three runs because you you brought you brought me home every time or something. That's like right. That. I mean, his RBIs were ridiculous because <laughs> he's hitting cleanup. You know, I was always you know first out of the shoot, first first up to bat. Yeah. I'd get on base, he'd knock me in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where uh, where do you end up going to undergrad? Undergrad was Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Gotcha. What was uh what draw drew you there? Hmm. Uh I would say that my teacher in high school, he was going there, he was gonna go there to get his master's. And so that was one thing, but he said you gotta go and play in the jazz band. At the time when I was there, Ellis Marsalis was directing the second jazz band. Oh, wow. Awesome. And so that was a great experience. And um, also it's, you know, pretty close to Roanoke where I grew up, about three hours away. Because you're in Richmond, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was also a factor. And I got in. So that was... (laughs) Um, like I said, I didn't have any mallet experience and just going in with nothing to play on mallets, you know, he accepted me and I, I got in the studio and, and, um, realized when I got there that everybody was better than me on mallets. So, um, I really needed to learn how to read music and catch up. You know, so I like to talk about my experience going in to let students know that it's not impossible. It's not impossible to do it. You just have to want to do it and do it, mm-hmm. you know, and to just be motivated to get better. And hopefully not try to compare yourselves to others. I was just trying to be better than I was the previous day, you know. Uh, but it did help to know that these other guys were a lot better than me um, because I'm a very competitive person. I could not take somebody being that much better than me on this instrument, you know. So I worked. That first year was rough. Yeah, that first freshman year was rough. Because you were you were felt like you had to be in a catch up position. Yeah. Very much. But, um, you know, my teacher was uh, very patient, but he was not a he was not a mallet player. He was an orchestral percussionist. He was principal percussionist with Richmond Symphony. And um, what was his name? Don Bick. Yeah. OK, I've heard I've heard that's names come up a couple times. So, I mean, for example, you'd go into your lessons and you'd work on snare drum and you'd work on excerpts, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, his idea of teaching you how to play four mallets was here's four mallets. Here's yellow after the rain, get your friends to show you how to hold four mallets, you know? So it was, yeah, I got my friends to show me how to hold them. And then it was just a lot of trial and error to figure out what is the motion? What am I supposed to be doing here? You know, um, 
And, you know, honestly, students don't realize how easy they have it today because there is no trial and error. It's just try. I'm showing you how to do everything. There are so many things on YouTube to watch. All you've got to do is try. All you've got to do is put forth the effort, you know? Yeah. And for me, it was hours and hours and hours of not doing it right and, you know, developing hand problems and all kinds of things and messing with my grip to figure out what was supposed to happen. And then all of a sudden, my junior year, Lee Stevens comes in to do a clinic and a concert. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That's how you do it. So, yeah. When you when you see him, was that a revelation in terms of grip or stroke type or both? Both. Okay. Everything. Everything. Um, I was doing a lot of things right, mm-hmm. but I was doing a lot of things wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. And watching him play, and I actually got to play for him in the master class. And so I got a little bit of like firsthand uh, commentary. So that was that was really great. And that was a huge motivator. I didn't even really like playing marimba. You know, I played it, but I mean, like it took me a whole year to learn yellow after the rain. I didn't want to, you know, and I always heard you can't make a living playing marimba. So, you know, why am I spending so much time on it? But then when I saw him, I was like, I don't care if I can't make a living playing marimba. I'm, I want to do it because it's awesome. And I, I fell in love with it. And so I, then I started really, really, really practicing and really wor- working on it, you know. Um, again, so still, idea of what the next of what the, the path is, I guess. of what. Yeah. What is possible? Yeah. Because um, he comes in playing all of that stuff that he commissioned and mm-hmm. like just mind blowing at that time. So then I started really working on it and just blowing through some literature, you know, just really playing a lot of different stuff. Then even when I went to Eastman, uh, John Beck said, you can't make a living playing marimba. And so I still didn't have any assumptions that I would do it. But then I did it. Right. So uh, I think it's just about, you know, kind of being entrepreneurial and um, just this is the only this is the only option. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a marimba. I've got a I can play it. And nobody else is really out there doing it a lot anyway. And I, I know Mike Bird obviously was out there a lot. Still is. Yeah. Lee and Bill Mersh. And yeah, there's like, she, like we can, but we, that list gets, gets ends quickly though, (laughs) essentially. Yeah. When I first started doing all of the uh, marimba concerts and things, because there was not that many people out there doing it, I think that made it more attractive for places to invite me in, you know? And so it was easier maybe than it is now to get uh, gigs. Was there, I'm curious, in that time when you finally leave and, and you kind of see the, maybe like you work, you start working through the, his method of movement and like you start getting better. Was there any piece or a performance where you were like, all right, like, I don't, I don't know what, what, where, I, where I'm thinking about this. Maybe a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to like this. Yeah. 
that same year, I played Yellow After the Rain mm-hmm. my freshman and sophomore year. And uh, I played another uh, transcription of Grieg um, pieces, piano mm-hmm. pieces. Oh, and yeah. That was, that was all I had played. Mm-hmm. And then Lee came, and there was another student at VCU playing Mexican dances. Mm. And I decided I'm going to play Mexican dances as well. And I had seen Julie Spencer a couple of years before that play it with only two mallets at Pacing. Really? Yep. The Wait, bo- the whole thing? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Insane. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible. So freaking chords. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the chords, she would split up. And so yeah. it's, instead of playing it was all triplet based and so it'd be like yeah yeah uh so it was it was slower obviously but it was very cool to watch her what she called horizontal technique Mm -hmm. and so i didn't really work on that with two mallets but i did apply that to some of my four mallet Mm -hmm. playing um and so i started playing mexican dances um, using that technique, but holding two mallets in the left hand. Toyed around with a lot of different pieces as well. Didn't really perform them, but just kind of pulled a lot of pieces out and just worked on some of the techniques from those pieces. And then for my senior recital, I decided I was going to play variations on Lost Love. <clears throat> and so that was kind of a turning point as uh, wow this music is awesome and i can actually do it that's that's a leap <laughs> that piece well i mean going <laughs> really even, hard even going into mexican dances was a leap yeah for me but then once i started and started pulling out all of those different pieces um and deciding i was going to do lost love um, and still, even when I was working on that for my recital, I was still pulling out a lot of different pieces of uh, the Hellbull stuff, uh, Grand Fantasy, mm-hmm. the t- um, preludes and things like that. Were you playing any of the um, Japanese lit? And I was just getting ready to say I was playing um, Tanaka mm-hmm. and going through a lot of the... Uh, I never, I didn't ever perform Time for Marimba, but I learned it. Um, but a lot of that stuff as well. Keiko Abe's book. Because what, what happened was I told my teacher, Don Bick, and I told him at the time, I want to be a college teacher. And so he would give me new pieces every week. He'd say, go learn Tanaka this week. And so I would have to come in and not be able to perform it, but at least be able to tell him what kind of techniques are in the piece and what a student might have to work on. Uh, And so that was his way of, number one, exposing more literature to me, but also kind of getting me ready to be a college teacher. Mm -hmm. Then it turns out I didn't want to be a college teacher. I (laughs) didn't want to do it at all. Um, 
but then for my um, master's recital, that was the first time I played Night Rhapsody. After that, I just I just figured, well, I can play Night Rhapsody. So it, there's going to be other challenging things to other pieces. But I think if I could work this one out, I can probably work out other things to other pieces. Now, some pieces for some people don't fit as well in their hands as other pieces. Like, like I said, I've performed Merlin 186 times, but it is not a piece that really fits well in my hands as well as like Night Rhapsody feels better in my hands than a piece like Merlin. When I'm looking at new pieces to play, it's all about what can I do really well, you know, play to my strengths. Obviously you want to do that. Caitlin's playing thinking songs. I can't play that. I, I mean, it would take me years yeah. to to learn that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just not something. It's just not something that fits well in my hands. Right. She sounds awesome when she plays it. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I played velocities, and that's another one that feels pretty good in certain spots in my hands but then there's also spots like when i have to when you have to play on the outside of the uh, accidentals mm -hmm. because my arms are short it's not something that really feels good to me yeah and getting into some of those positions so anyway yeah i feel like if you when you have to do all of those performances or work up those pieces enough to know kind of what how to teach them those are the things that you you can start to figure out for you. Like, I'm sure you you kind of could could say, okay, I understand what I would need to do. Also, I don't really want to play this. <laughs> like both, you're making both of those judgments at the same time. Yeah, definitely, so. definitely. Do do you do is Eastman a grad? Is Eastman both grad degrees? No, I stayed at, at VCU for my masters. Okay. Um, because I was playing with the Richmond Symphony all the time. Mm. And um, I also got an assist assistantship there. And um, I was working a lot in the area. So mm. it was a great place for me to be. And actually, I thought I was going to end up there. I thought this is going to be my career. I'm going to just stay in Richmond because I was gigging all the time. Um, but then somebody said, you need to go to Eastman. And I wanted to go to Eastman and study with John Beck. And as an undergrad and a master's student, I didn't get a whole lot of timpani experience. And so when I went to Eastman, that was really going to be the thing was to study timpani with John Beck. And that's what I did mostly. I think I played marimba for John Beck three times. And each time was maybe a couple of weeks before my recitals. And it just wasn't something that I was... He, he didn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he, he was, I wanted to do what he did really well, you know? Right. So that, I just got my doctorate there. VCU was my master's. What, if anything, felt different as a, I'm okay. So you have an, an assistantship, but you're also in the same school where you were an undergrad. So what felt similar, different as a student? between those two degrees. Wow. This was like, you know, 35 years ago. I, understand. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to put myself back in that, that position. 
yeah, obviously with the assistant the assistantship, I had more responsibilities and I had to had to act a little bit more mature. <laughs> like frustratingly. Yeah. <laughs> Probably wasn't that successful at it. Uh, yeah, because I mean, you know, at that age, you're still young and dumb. Yeah. And uh especially not being around I think if I had gone someplace where I was around doctorate students, uh, you know, I don't know. It might have been uh, a better environment, but it it might not have been. I might not have gotten all. I got all of the best experiences being a graduate student there. You know, plus I was playing in the orchestra, like I said, all the time. Um, but even the school stuff, I was, you know, principal in every ensemble. So I was getting the best parts all the time. Yeah. Putting your back in the, in the headspace here, but were you thinking then I'm, I'm trying to go the orchestral route? Yes, very much. Cause I was taking auditions whenever they were coming up and things like that and doing okay. You know, then when I, Left Eastman, there were no auditions. So, what do you do? Did you, I mean, because that's a very, obviously, a very different type of practicing for mm -hmm. those. Did you like doing that kind of practicing? No, I hated it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, the last audition that I took was for the Rochester Philharmonic principal spot. Mm -hmm. And I, remember thinking this is the most grueling practicing and not rewarding at all. And it probably, you know, that probably carried over into my audition. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't ever want to do it again after that. That's a, it's kind of a fascinating thing of, I guess it's like you walk in and you just think, well, this is it. <laughs> yep. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I'm not doing this again. You know, it's just so frustrating to go in and, like I said, not musically rewarding. Now, playing in the orchestra, that's a different thing. But taking the audition, uh, to me, is just not fulfilling at all. You know, you can sit in the practice room and get everything – to this really, really high level. And then you make one mistake at the audition and you're cut. It's like, that would never happen in the real world. You know, if you make a mistake at the gig, okay, you're not going to get cut. You're not going to lose your job for making one mistake. In other words, you're not going to lose your job for missing one note on Colossus. So yeah, that experience was not a good experience, and I didn't ever want to do it again. During your doctor, and do you go? I'm sorry, do you go straight through? Yes. Okay. So, what was your when you do get to Eastman? What was your first, either both school and city wise, indication that you're no longer in Virginia anymore? <laughs> okay. Uh, October 31st, it started snowing, <laughs> and it snowed two feet. And, on Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now that was the first indication. <laughs> um, but also, uh, 
as far as the school, obviously a lot bigger school and a lot more talent. Just walk through the hallway and you see all of these famous faculty members and the facility itself is just, you know, awesome. And, and playing in the ensembles was unbelievable. I remember taking a sublist audition like the f- very first week of school or maybe even before school started, I took a sublist audition and blew it. A freshman placed ahead of me or a sophomore, a sophomore placed ahead of me. And then as a doctorate student, you have to teach the undergrads. Right. And he just happened to be one of my students. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, this is embarrassing, but I said, let's do something that I'm really good at that you're not as good at. So he would take the way it worked back then was you took, they would take one week with John Beck and then the next week with a doctorate student. So with Beck, he would go and play his excerpts. And with me, we would play some marimba. Mm-hmm. So at, at least we found a way around, you know, you know, again, working to my strengths. So those, those things were, were great. And you know, when I was there, we had just a really great studio. Susan Powell was there. Joe Krieger was there. Blake Tyson was there. It was just all of these great players and great people. And it was just fun to be around these, these guys because they, number one, were super talented, but also just, you know, nice. And so it it was great to be there. The following June, it was June 14th, 14th, June 14th, and it snowed. (laughs) Yeah. So those things, you know, those constant reminder that you're not home anymore, you know, (laughs) that you got to get this degree done so you can get out of (laughs) here. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's another reason that you weren't too super upset you missed that uh, Rochester Philharmonic audition. Oh, yeah, I know. Gosh, man, I don't know what I'd have, I probably would have quit. Um, yeah, I mean, I did not like Rochester itself, but uh, I loved Eastman and I loved being there and surrounded by all the, the great players. Yeah. I and I that's something I've the, the, I've talked to a lot of Eastman people on uh, over the years and that's definitely it always gets brought up like it, the faculty are one thing but you're around the best violinists and pianists and vocal like everybody is on fire basically yeah I'm curious what was was what was sim- between Bick and um, Beck I didn't realize how close those names. <laughs> um, what was what seemed to be similar, different in kind of teaching style, teaching philosophy between them? Well, their teaching style was very similar, actually. And in order to get the best out of both of them, you had to go in with questions, hmm. you know, because you could go in and you could play. And if you played, you know, if you played well, then both of them would say, sounds good. But long, long silence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but if you had questions, sounds good, but what if I did it this way? Sounds good. But how would I play this excerpt in a 
in an audition versus live. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you had a bunch of questions, then you got the best out of them because then they would, uh, you'd have to make them work. <laughs> um, but very, both of them very laid back. Um, they weren't there to motivate you. That was your job. And uh, I could see a lot of students at VCU, not at Eastman, uh, people didn't do this at Eastman, but at VCU, you know, if you weren't motivated and you just went into your lesson, he might say, okay, see you like next week. And that would be it. Yeah. But if you went into your lesson and you were prepared and had questions, you know, and wanted to learn, then that's when you really got the best. I'm curious, Dale, are, do you find yourself, are you like that? With some students I am. And, yeah. um, but, but not with everybody. Some, sometimes I, I find myself really having to motivate, mm -hmm. which I shouldn't have to do. But um, I think, and, you know, just talking to a lot of people last year at PASIC, uh, a lot of people saying the same things, just lack of motivation with students yeah. these days. And, um, you know, saying things like, this is what you want to do with your life. You know, this is what you want to do. Why aren't you doing any better? Why aren't you working? So whereas where I felt like Bick and Beck, their, their job was teacher. And I feel like my job is uh, teacher slash coach slash cheerleader slash therapist, you know, just and I'm not trained to do any of those things. Right. Definitely a challenge. Definitely a challenge. And you got to find that sweet spot with every student. You know, every student responds differently to things. And some of them are very self-motivated and others are, you got to, you got to lead them the right way and you got to be just the right cheerleader and, you know, say just the right things. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, Andy, I finished up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. All right. First question is not random, but what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Well, we talked about this briefly a few minutes ago or an hour ago, probably. Uh, the fact that, you know, nobody's sight reading. Mm. Uh, I think it's a huge issue. You know, I can tell my students over and over and over to sight read. You got to sight read every day. You got to sight read every day. And it's not getting any, not getting any better. And then that post coming out from a PAS page asking if sight reading is still considered important. Holy cow, you're an educator. How is sight reading not important? I mean, if anything, the issue should be turned around to memorization. Is memorization important? Oh, yeah. Or is sight reading more important? You know, who's memorizing stuff? Only people like me, you know, that are out there performing marimba concerts. Nobody else is memorizing. Certainly not the ones who are doing chamber, a lot of chamber stuff. Absolutely. Yes. So what's more important? Reading. Yeah. yeah. Come on, people. Get your reading together. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. No, that's good. That's that's good. I've I've asked this a few times over over the years, and kind of this is kind of this is perfect. You're a perfect person for this question because I I'm sure that you do a ton of master classes with all these with the performances, and you see a lot of students playing. And I'm curious of what works, and we'll focus this specifically on marimba. You know, what pieces do you do not see being played as often as you used to see? You know, I haven't seen Mexican dances played in forever. Mm. Yeah. And to me, that's that's a standard and everybody should know that piece because there are so many genius musical opportunities in that piece, especially the second movement. Yeah. Um, and people just don't play it. Everybody's more interested in in the catchy stuff like Ivan Trevino. Um, I mean, all of his stuff is very popular and I'm not not saying that it shouldn't be played. I'm just saying that people should expand beyond that. I judge the uh, keyboard thing at PASIC a lot. I judge it a lot. I don't see a lot of the classic things being played. Now, to me, Merlin is a classic because it's been around long enough since 1985, 1984, mm-hmm. um, to be considered a classic. So I see, see that one a lot. But I don't see a lot of the other older pieces that, in my opinion, are still brilliant. Mm-hmm. See a lot of uh, attempts at Vignal. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah, that like I was thinking like yeah like my own attempt at Vignal was yeah, I think I could fit that one in. <laughs> uh, and like I said, you know uh, the the catchier things, the more hip or the more tonal uh, pieces, mm-hmm. especially for uh, younger players, I think they should should expand into other other avenues. One piece that I always think about, I remember, I, I can't, I'm like, you know, I, I had, I remember, I think I told you this when I talked to you at PASIC this past year. Um, I don't know if you remember that conversation, but I was talking, because I, I had, because we were talking about court, you know, and when you came and played at UNCG. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, when I was grad student, I remember you playing a lot of lit that I hadn't heard. Like, I, you, I think you played Night Rhapsody on that. You played Merlin. Um, you played a couple other things that I don't think we were as exposed to, which was great. But I remember one of the pieces that I played that I think I picked up towards the end of my doctorate was Northern Lights. And I remember it's funny, Court made it, he's just like, you know what? I bet, I bet this piece will not be that popular in like, you know, five years or something. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I sure enough, like, I can't remember the last time I heard anybody play that piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. I never hear that piece played. Yeah. I n- never hear Lost Love played. I never hear Tanaka. Mm-hmm. I never hear, like I said, Mexican dances, yeah. which just blows me away. How about Reflections? I I probably hear that one too much. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least a couple of the movements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this past year, I think I heard Fleet – a couple of times at, at uh, master classes. I'm not surprised that like some of these works come in cycles. That makes sense. I think also, and I'm curious also about this is that, you know, because there has been so much, the, the, the amount of writing, I, I would say more for marimba and other 
is like really proliferated in the last 15 years or so. I mean, do you, do you try to keep up with that stuff or are you just kind of like, do students even come to you and just be like, you'd be like, I've not, never heard this before. You know, what are you, does that happen a lot? Yeah, that happens occasionally. Uh, I encourage my students to find their own pieces. Mm-hmm. Now, some, sometimes I'll assign, you need to do this just because it's good for you. Mm-hmm. But um, like, especially if they're going to prepare for a recital, I like for them to find their own pieces and bring them to me uh, because if they're not passionate about it, they're not going to do a good job with it. You know, so I want them to find a piece that they really like so that they'll work hard on it, you know, and occasionally that, that, you know, bring stuff in that is like, wow, I've never heard that before. And that's, that's very cool. I, I like it when that happens. Because I obviously can't keep up with every composer that's out there writing stuff, you know. There's just too much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and another thing you made me think of is I had recently judged a, a high school competition, marimba competition. And it was interesting because there was a lot of stuff that they that were that the teachers were pulling out that was like older stuff that I actually, I was like, it was kind of like a brought back memories for me. Cause there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of Rosaro. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there was some Bobo, there was some, um, uh, some Burrit, some early Burrit. There was like stuff that I was like, Oh yeah, this is like, <laughs> I remember dealing with all these pieces back in the like late nineties. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> But it's, of course, it's like high school students are doing them. And I was like grad student, like, all right, these pieces are so cool. Yeah, yeah right. Yep. Well, going back to your question about percussion education, another thing that is a, a pet peeve of mine is uh, students playing things that they're not ready to play. Yeah. Like the teacher uh, has pulled this piece out and given it to the student, and they're clearly not ready to play it. Either uh, – technically or maybe from a musical standpoint to understand musically what they're supposed to be doing with the piece. You're definitely right on that. I also think some of that comes from sometimes the students bringing something and then the teacher may not go, yeah, maybe six months. Like you're ready for this. (laughs) Yeah. That's why you do your daily routine and you work on things to prepare you for the music. You don't, yeah, I think it's backwards to pick the music so that you can learn a technique. You know what I mean? Like if you can't play a one-handed roll, don't play words unspoken because it's the first bar. You know, you should be able to play it so that you can focus on the music right. and focus on what, how you want to sound rather than struggling to get this one-handed roll to happen. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. My two cents. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. All right. Some other questions uh, in different form, Andy. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Uh, well, Brian Nosny thinks that he has a good impression of me. <laughs> but it's terrible. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, as a student, you, you're always walking around making fun of, or not making fun of, but trying to impersonate your teacher. And I'm sure my students do that, just not to my face. Uh-huh. Yeah. Except Brian, who has no problems doing it right to you. He's he he thinks he's he thinks he's nailing it, but he's <laughs> it's just not. It's just not good. It's <laughs> that is awesome. 
Fantastic. What is the most impractical item of clothing you have that you own? Excuse me. Impractical. I would say uh, a big winter coat that I've had for years. And, you know, it gets cold in Cleveland, but it's not super cold. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I I usually just walk around with my uh, North Face fleece even during the winter. So I'd say that that's probably it. That, that's a, that tracks. That's a, there's a lot of the Eastman people that I've talked to who are in Texas and they're like, I still have my snow boots. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Um, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? A great movie. All right. Well, I'm a huge fan of all the Rocky movies. Oh yeah. yeah. Really? Even Rocky yeah. five. Not Rocky Five so much. Okay. But <laughs> <what I'm> saying. <laughs> the, the latest Rocky movie, I think, is the best one where he's still he's old, but he's still doing it. Oh, the Rocky Balboa. Yeah, Rocky Balboa. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and maybe I resonate with that one just because of my my own life experiences and 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 things like that. So that that one uh, I love. Oh well, I like all the Rockies, but um, that one sticks out right now. Yeah, uh, a terrible movie. There is another. There's a movie called The Pink Chiquitas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I watched. I watched this movie years ago, and it actually has Frank Stallone in it. <laughs> Frank Stallone, yes. <laughs> and it is terrible. It is awful. Nice. Yeah. Not but you, yeah. you still, if you ever come across it or if you Google it, you got to watch it because okay. it's so bad and hilarious. Nice. There's definitely not enough Frank Stallone content. I <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, that is hilarious. How are you on the, uh, the Creed movies? I, I like them just because okay. Stallone is in them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the. I mean, I like the second Creed. The first Creed I thought was fantastic, um, and I love that how it how it like you said continues the story. Yeah, and um, in a different direction, but I, I liked I liked the direction. So yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's a favorite book? Well, right now my daughter and I are reading Harry Potter, mm. the Chamber of Secrets. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that one. And if Dr. Jones is listening to this, she's a huge Harry Potter fan. Right. So yes. She will uh, she'll appreciate it. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So we're about, we're about done with the second book and hopefully start the third book. Hopefully soon. Yeah. Excellent. I think they get better. Uh, I mean, if you, like, if you already like them, I think – they they get more interesting as they get as they get further on. Cool. Yeah. Exciting. Now, we we did talk about your sports career, but do you have a sports fandom? No. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you're in it's interesting. You're in an area you grew up in an area where there's not I mean, it's not I mean, I guess you would probably be the now the the command like the Washington football team would probably have been that would have been the, the closest one, yeah. Or um, or the Orioles or something like that. Carolina Panthers, maybe. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. But um, right now, 
I don't keep up with anything because mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have enough time sure. to sit down and watch a game. Yeah. You know? So uh, my brother always tries to keep me updated with things going on in sports. And I'm just like, I don't even know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's been so long since I've even seen a game. Ah, nothing. Sorry. Blank. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Got nothing. Now, I mean, years ago, I used to keep up with Miami Dolphins. Oh. Me and my brother both, because he's a huge fan. And, and that would be the source of a lot of our conversations would be what's going on with the team and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But like I said, just recently, probably in the last 10 years, I haven't nothing. Well, I was thinking you're probably Marino era then. Yeah. Your guy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I hated him because he killed my jets all the time. <laughs> that was a huge rivalry. Which yeah. we mostly got smoked on. Yes. That, you were <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That, that's hilarious. Um, what is a other question? What is a, your best kitchen mess up? Oh, you ready for this one? Mm, yes. Okay. How many years ago was this? About five years ago, I'm slicing sweet potatoes to cook for my daughter. Mm-hmm. She used to eat them in little circles. Okay, cool. Okay. And it was late at night. Was not paying as much attention as I should have been. And I sliced off the tip of my middle finger to where it was like barely hanging on. Oh. Now, she was already asleep. I was the only one in the house. I didn't want to wake her up to go to the emergency room. So I super glued that sucker. Oh, my gosh. And it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) It works great. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I would say that was the biggest mess up. Uh, there was another time where I decided, for whatever reason, uh, to eat a Carolina Reaper hot pepper. And again, this was late at night. Mm-hmm. And I spent the next two hours with my mouth underneath a faucet and just shoving ice cubes into my mouth. <laughs> Those things are so hot. This on a dare, you were just like, ah, this can't be that bad. Like, is that what you walked in? I think I was just at a low point in my life and I saw the, <laughs> saw the pepper sitting there and I said, let's spice things up a little bit. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not always that bright. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> You know, I was, I was thinking after you uh, after you you fixed your finger that you said you probably thought to yourself, you know, call me Doctor Harnsberger for nothing. That's right, man. I knew that they had used that they use super glue in emergency rooms. It's just like it's not really super glue. It's like an emergency room, a hospital version of it. Mm-hmm. And this is not the first time I've had to use super glue. Oh. I was doing a, a concert at MTSU several years ago, uh-huh. and my piece, Palmetto Moon, has wine glasses uh-huh. and attuned wine glasses. And I was washing the glasses before the concert, and one of them shattered in my hand. And I had glass just in my hand and cut my middle finger. And 
then I had to go play a concert. Like, you know, by the end of Night Rhapsody, I had blood all over my mallets. It was <laughs> wearing a white shirt. I had blood on my shirt. Uh, Probably like apologizing for having to have the marimba cleaned afterwards or something. Oh, like gosh. It was it was crazy. And there was another time I was at UNC Pembroke mm-hmm. and I had a concert that night. And I was just reaching into my shaving kit for something and sliced my ring finger open on my shave, on my razor. Oh. And I had Band-Aids on it, but Band-Aids weren't working. So I, again, had to use super glue. So now I just carry super glue with me because you never know what's going to (laughs) happen. And they call you doctor. That's again, you just, that's what your follow-up is on that. That's right. I'm a doctor. Now you're going to have people listening to this podcast and every time they cut themselves, they're going to be sticking super glue, (laughs) try to heal it. And they, without your previous expertise on the matter. So that's right. That's right. And so they're going to end up, you know, going to be a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah. That is probably true. Yes. (laughs) All right. What's something this could be pop culture or something that's just kind of on the obscure end. But let's say you meet somebody and they say, I like blank, whatever that is, which immediately you go, "Okay, we're good. What's that for you? Pizza. Okay. (laughs) Pizza. Not too obscure, but is there like a (laughs) just any kind of pizza or does it have to be something pretty specific? Uh, Pepperoni. Oh, okay. Let's just say pepperoni. No, no Hawaiian. Oh, no okay. Hawaiian. That was just the first thing that came to my mind. Okay, awesome. I must be craving pizza. Maybe. I mean, it is lunchtime, so that, that yeah. makes sense. Can you? Is there like a really good, like a, a specific pepperoni pizza from a place where you're like, that's it's not not getting any better than that. I don't know if it's not getting any better than that, but I had pizza with Dr. Jones at this place in Columbia called the Village Idiot. Mm. And it was pretty daggone good. Yeah. Nice. It's good stuff. In in Cleveland, there's not a whole lot of great pizza places. So, you know. Mm. Yeah. That's what we're missing. There was also this really great place in Richmond, Virginia uh, called Piccola's. And it was uh, New York style Mm -hmm. and just – by the slice and the slices were bigger than your face. And it was, it was awesome. Yeah. That's the best. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? I still want to get to, I'd love to get to New Zealand. Mm. I've not been there. Been to a lot of places that I really want to go back to, but um, someplace that I've never been would be New Zealand. I've never been to Alaska either. I'd like to go to Alaska. All right, a couple more. What is the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Well, how about cutting my hand open on that? <laughs> sure, yeah, that, that's true. I'm a wine glass. I did a concert this past semester that um, I just I was nervous the entire time to the point of just shaking the entire performance. Mm. And that, I can't remember ever having that happen. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other things bizarre. You know why? Was it unexplained or was there a reason? Just unexplained. 
Huh. Don't know why. And I, I felt like it was one of the worst performances I ever gave because of that, but the audience loved it. So I got really great response from the crowd. So uh, one time with the Jack Daniels band, I had food poisoning or something mm. and actually threw up on the stage in the concert. Mm. Yeah. Did you miss any rests or were you, were you, did you, did you place it? Did you, did it fit in exactly where it needed to be? It fit in where it needed to be. And luckily it didn't land on any instruments. And, Good. and uh, it was, we, we had a, a gazebo that we played in mm-hmm. and I, I oh, it's outside. It was supposed to be like an out, outside concert, uh-huh. but th- the concerts were always inside, but okay. in a gazebo. Okay. Gotcha. And so I did make it off the gazebo. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a key. That's a key portion. Gosh, I hadn't thought about that in years. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Okay. Uh, Andy, last question. What one piece of art could be movies, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, anything has impacted you the most recently? Gosh, really trying to think of something profound, but I'm going to have to go back to the Rocky movies just because they're so motivational. And um, I don't know if you even knew this about me, but in, t- in 2017, I was diagnosed with, with breast cancer. And so those kind of motivational movies, uh, help me to keep moving forward and help me to keep doing what I'm doing, not just making it from day to day, but actually excelling and being creative and performing and, you know, not just beating cancer, but beating cancer and doing the things that I do, you know, being a dad, being a performer, being an educator, um, all of those things. So um, at night when I'm not doing anything, if I've got some time, I will pull up Rocky motivational clips. Oh yeah. On YouTube and just watch them. And it just reminds me that, you know, life is hard and you just got to be strong, you know? So those things help me to do what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know. I think I I heard you say, talk about, or, or at least, you know, talk about this, the cancer, um, at some point in the past, how did you even know or what develops that? Because in a guy, this is an unusual, I, I think a relatively unusual type of cancer, right? Yeah, it's rare. Yeah. So what happened was the year before that, I had some skin cancer removed on my neck. Mm, okay. And at one of my follow-up visits, the... Uh, doctor said, do you have any other concerns? And I said, well, you know, I'm at that age where it's time to start getting everything checked. Mm -hmm. And um, it'd be nice to just know where I am. And he said, my best friend works at the oncology. um, Yeah, whatever. uh, Place, which is basically right across the street. And he said, they're doing full body scans. For free, Mm. just, you know, just as a service to the community. He said, I can get you in there today. So I went over there, got the body scan, and they discovered the abnormalities. 
so that's when I found out that that's, oh my gosh, this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I spent uh, the next almost two years uh, on chemo and lost almost 60 pounds. Oh my goodness. But still performing, still going out and doing concerts mm-hmm. and decided that the drugs were no longer helping me. And so I just cleaned up everything in my diet and now it's gone. That's awesome. So just completely, you know, talk about pizza, but yeah, on, on when I'm on this plan, I don't eat anything processed at all mm-hmm. and just everything clean, clean as can be. I don't know enough about chemo drugs to, to, to like be very knowledgeable, but I, I know, I think I know that it's, that it can be just really either harmful or like it can be destructive on your body to, to. Yeah. You're basically killing everything in your body to kill the cancer. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't honestly couldn't do it anymore. I was sick every day and I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And every time I went to the doctor, uh, there was never any better news. Mm. In fact, they, they have a test. It's called uh, your CEA levels. And for a normal person, those, those numbers are zero to two. And if it gets above two, then that's kind of a factor that says you, you got to look at these numbers. You know, you got to do something. And so every time I went and got a scan and every time I got my CEA numbers back, my numbers were higher. Mm-hmm. And I kept telling them how sick I was and all the side effects I was having and that the numbers were not going down. Yeah. And then after I had been, uh, after I'd cleaned up and gotten on my plan with my diet for a year, all of my numbers were down. Yeah. Without the chemo. Without the chemo. And of course they said that's because you did the chemo. That it just took longer. But I don't believe that, you know? Yeah. So right now I'm good. Everything's good. I'm sorry if you don't mind me asking. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Did you, did you have to have stuff removed? Like, no. Oh, okay. No, I did not want to do that. Had it not got, had it not progressed that far? It had not. It was, it was, um, stage two. Mm -hmm. And, if it had gone, well, they said to remove anything would be to take the entire pectoral muscle out. Mm. Now, if you think about that, we do a lot of daily activities that require those muscles. Yes. Even just driving. Yeah. So it would have been a hardship, a huge hardship. I probably never would have played again. Yeah. So I said no to that. And just just tried to read as much as I could. There are so many websites and so much information out there uh, that steer you away from chemo. Yeah, you know, and and that's where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's a lot of medical evidence that says you should do the chemo, um, but 
that's just the route that I chose. Yeah. And it seems to have worked. So far. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's worked. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Andy. You're done. All right. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, thank you. Like, Hope it turns out okay. Oh yeah, no, I, this is gonna be this is a good one. I, I just like that you called Brian Nosny out. I think I think just <laughs> that alone is was worth the price of admission for this one. Okay, good. <laughs> Such a total pleasure getting to have Andy on the show. It was a delight. I look forward to keeping up with him and his career moving forward and checking back with him in the future. A sports-related rave this week. This week's rave is a reflection on the life and career of the recently departed Bill Russell. Bill Russell was likely most well-known for his career as a basketball player. He is the greatest winner in pro team sports in the United States. He played 13 years in the NBA and won the NBA title 11 times, 11 out of 13. Just for a comparison, Michael Jordan, widely considered the greatest NBA player ever, won the NBA title six times. Okay, so that's one part. I should also mention that for his final three years as a player, and the last two titles he won, he was also the head coach and the first black head coach in the NBA. So take that into consideration. Also, he won the Olympic gold medal in 1956 and the NCAA championship back-to-back in 1955 and 56 at a place called the University of San Francisco. Not a basketball factory, of any sort, or a place that's had major basketball success either before or since. And he revolutionized the game. He's the reason the NBA became a fast-break league, got more athletic, saw the importance of black players towards winning, and was the greatest shot blocker and rebounder of all time, along with being its greatest winner. And still, we're not even close to getting the full measure of the man. Bill Russell led the Boston Celtics to those 11 championships in the 1950s and 60s while the city was still mired in being one of the most racist places to live in the world. The city didn't know what to do with him. This proud, smart black man who had to deal with racist insults from his own fans and having his own house broken into by locals and defaced. He was the best player of his era in that town and received none of the adulation received by that of his white teammate Bob Cousy or other white stars of the time, Bobby Orr in hockey or Ted Williams in baseball received. And it should be noted that Bobby Orr and Ted Williams had two total championships among them, and they were both Bobby Orr's. He led player empowerment during the civil rights era of 1960s marched on Washington in 1963, and was a pioneer for civil rights throughout his life, particularly as a member of the 1967 Cleveland Summit, with black leaders in all sports convening to support Muhammad Ali's decision to boycott the Vietnam War. 
an extremely controversial decision that cost Ali three and a half years of his prime as an athlete. Later on in 2011, he was the first basketball player to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But even amongst all that, he was also an incredible writer. His memoirs, arriving in various volumes over the years, are some of the best nonfiction reading I've ever done. I've gotten to read and listen to a few of them over that time, but if there's one that is required reading, it's Second Wind, which was written in 1979. Some of the most riveting accounts of his life, his basketball knowledge and strategy, and his upbringing that you'll ever read. Recently, the NBA renamed its finals MVP trophy after him, which anytime his name was mentioned or brought up among current and former NBA players would all receive him with gratitude and thank him for his contributions, as everyone should have done. In any case, rest in peace and rest in power, Bill Russell. You will be missed. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time.